Welcome to Please Expand Podcast, where we expand on topics pertaining to mental health, lifestyle, and friendships. I'm your host, Genesis, and there is nothing I love more than gathering around and having healing conversations that come from the soul. Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of Please Expand. I'm super excited for um, the episode today. I have an amazing friend that is here. She is an associate marriage and family therapist, and she works with individuals who have uh, comorbid substance use disorders and works with acuity mental health. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. um, High acuity mental health. Yeah. (laughs) disorders. I was like, there's so many words. I know. Yeah. 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 But it's like, yeah. it's, it seems like a very, um, like in the trenches job. It is because our clients are coming in. Um, most of the clientele is, is homeless, um, or is coming out of jail or prison. Um, and so we have a lot of trauma that we deal with and you're dealing with, um, mm-hmm. you know, addiction. And then on top of that, a lot of mental health um, issues. Yeah. So it does feel like it's in the trenches. Yeah. yeah. And I'm so excited to ask you more about that. Mm-hmm. But at first I want to start with like telling us a little bit more about like how you got, like what interests you about this specific population and what kind of like got you into doing therapy? Wow. I know um, it's a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, this population I was interested in because mm-hmm. I am at myself in recovery mm-hmm. um, from alcoholism and addiction. And so I got sober like eight and a half years ago. Um, and in that process, I also started recognizing my own mental health issues, mm-hmm. um, which I'd been dealing with forever, but had not like I had some diagnoses, but like not the right ones. So in this whole healing process with me, um, going through all of that, I started to like think about how I could help other people. Mm -hmm. And I think because I've experienced a lot of those things, when I work with my clients, I can, you know, I can relate to what they're talking about. And I think there's so much stigma around addiction and Mm -hmm. mental health that, having like coming from someone who's been there and knows and has Mm -hmm. been through, you know, a lot of therapy and whatever. Um, I feel like I can bring a perspective that's very non-judgmental and Mm -hmm. understanding to help the clients. Yeah. Cause you were also on the receiving end of like being stigmatized or maybe being shamed for like do for being in this, like being part of this population yes. um, and having your own like obstacles to overcome with that. Right. Um, have you, when you are working with your clients, is there like, you've spoke a little bit about like the benefits of um, mm-hmm. like being able to understand them. Mm-hmm. Are there ever any times where it's like, oh my gosh, this is taking me back. Like where it feels like, cause I imagine it being almost like a balancing act. Yeah. Um, I think when I first started doing it, that was more, that happened more often Mm -hmm. where I would get kind of triggered, Mm -hmm. um, more so by the mental health part, I think, Mm -hmm. um, because I have bipolar disorder and I work with a lot of clients with bipolar disorder. Um, and so hearing them talk about their symptoms and what they're going through would kind of take me back to when I was really sick with that. Mm -hmm. Um, the addiction, I would have some triggers, like I would have counter-transference at times, Um, with clients who had similar stories, um, clients who, because I was very, um, like functioning, I, you know, had a high profile job, all that kind of stuff and then really kind of crashed and burned. So hearing clients 
talk about that. I had a client once who was a doctor and like lost everything. And so hearing that kind of stuff would be kind of, I'd have a lot of countertransference mm-hmm. because it was like, oh my gosh, I relate to this. Yeah. Um, yeah. But for the most part, I think it's, there's kind of a healing for me also in part of it and being like, I don't want to go back to that. And so hearing clients talk about it is like, I can help them hopefully heal in the ways that I've healed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it feels like full circle. Like now you have the tools that you can help others and guide others with. Exactly. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Can you tell me more about like maybe common behaviors or common things that you see when people are struggling with a mental health disorder and substance uh, use or substance disorder? Um, Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the commonalities is trauma. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of complex trauma with this population. And especially as things have escalated for them, like I said, if they've become homeless, um, if they have, um, you know, justice system related stuff, um, there's a lot of like a a gang related part of our population. Mm -hmm. And so there's so much trauma in that. And I think that's kind of a common bond between the clients, but they don't always know that, Mm -hmm. you know, when people have a lot of trauma, it feels like it's only me. Yeah. And so I think, um, helping clients to work through that trauma and to recognize that their trauma is valid. Um, you know, if you have a client, like I've had clients who are high up in their gang or whatever, Mm -hmm. and they're really just that most of my clients are men. So they're really just like these little boys who mm-hmm. at seven or eight started witnessing all this, this stuff mm-hmm. and their trauma has compiled over the years. And so kind of being able to take them back to that, like inner child um, yeah. and see that vulnerability and let them work through some of that trauma um, I think is really powerful and for them. Yeah. And just experiencing trauma, like in itself can feel very isolating Um, And how you said, like, they don't, even though they don't know that this is what they all can connect with, like, it's one of the main things is having this trauma and that feeling of loss of control at an early age. Yes. Yeah. Like, I, I, so I run Mm -hmm. groups as well. Mm -hmm. And when we're processing, I mean, I had a group not too long ago where one of the, it's an all male group. And one of the clients talked about his sexual abuse as a child Mm -hmm. and, other, and it was kind of like, okay, how is this going to go in this group of like really hardened, like, you know, guys, like just masculine men, totally, you know, coming out of prison Mm -hmm. and like multiple guys in that group spoke up and were were like, I understand what you're talking about happened to me too. And that kind of vulnerability and, Mm -hmm. and community, like I'm not alone. These people can understand when I say these things, People have been there and they get it and they're not judging me. Mm -hmm. I think just gave me chills. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I felt it too. Like just the fact, I think also the whole like not judging me part, because I think when you are in a space or like your home environment or your friends where you experience the trauma and you're like um, maybe seeking refuge or like with uh, substances, it can feel isolating. It can feel very like distancing. Um, And I honestly, I lost my train of thought. (laughs) I'm just like thinking of like all these men are coming together and being able to relate to one another, even though their experiences were probably 
very different, you know, like maybe like context wise, but to be able to relate in that way. Totally. And the, and the stigmas that's, that's the stigma that's behind Mm -hmm. all of that because you've got the stigma with addiction. You you reminded me the judging part. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Continue. Yeah. No, you've got the stigma with addiction, the stigma with the mental health part. Mm -hmm. Like, um, for me, the stigma with addiction wasn't as bad as that. Like, I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not as open about my mental health stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't talk about that as much. I'll talk about the fact that, oh, I've had depression or I have OCD or I have an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, but the bipolar part's really hard for me to talk about because there's so much stigma around that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, so I think these guys coming in again, they're like these tough hardened, you know, guys, they have a really hard time admitting like, yeah, these are the issues I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. And society looks at this population as kind of a throwaway population, Mm -hmm. you know, um, as far as like, even like government and policies around, you know, mass incarceration and all this stuff that affects this population, they're kind of just swept under the rug. Like people don't want to see it. They don't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so giving these guys a voice, um, we do have some females too, but it's just, a, we only have 12. Mm-hmm. Um, so giving these guys a voice and having them recognize like those stigmas don't make up who you are. Yeah. They don't define you. They don't define you. Yeah. Exactly. And I do, I can imagine this, like the judgment of like feeling like people are going to judge me for my instability or thinking that I am unstable, like unstable, like I'm not able to handle things or I'm going to like, um, burst or I'm going to like react in a way that's like not appropriate. So I, yeah, like going through your life also, like, I think it is so valid, like feeling the need to not want to share that with people. Right. Um, Can you, do you feel comfortable like speaking Mm -hmm. a little bit more on your personal experience with, you know, having bipolar disorder and trying to navigate your world and your friendships and relationships? Sure. Yeah. So I was misdiagnosed for like, I don't even know, um, 15 plus years, Mm -hmm. um, as having major depressive disorder. Um, like I said, I have all these other diagnoses as well. Um, but in my life it caused, like I had, um, I had risen up in the ranks of my old profession, um, as a journalist and I had like achieved all these things, but my mental health was so out of whack, Mm -hmm. um, that at one point I basically kind of wasn't able to go to work. And I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know that it was bipolar disorder. I didn't know even that it was the depression. Like I thought I had physical illnesses and, Mm -hmm. and whatever. And it really ended that career for me. Um, and so the shame of that and not knowing what's wrong. Like feeling like a failure and not being able to connect with why it happened. And feeling like, um, I hate this word, but at the time, like I felt like I was quote unquote crazy. Mm -hmm. Like what is happening with me? I don't understand why can't I, why can't I function? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it took me a long time to get the right diagnosis. And in the meantime, I basically had five years where I was kind of out of the world. Mm-hmm. Like I was not functioning. Um, and I finally got the help that I needed and then got back to like being me, um, yeah. which was huge. But then I think because of that and because of where I'd gone, like I really had two years where I didn't leave the house, you know, Mm -hmm. because of, of how far down I'd gone. Mm -hmm. Um, it's scary to tell people that Mm -hmm. and going into grad school, I was really scared to talk about it because I didn't want people to think, Oh, you can't handle this. Like like you you weren't capable of like, or she's going to flip out or whatever, Mm -hmm. because they don't understand what it means. It's Mm -hmm. not like, you know, people with these mental health disorders are not 
dangerous, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's so much in our media and in society that really pushes that message. Um, yeah. So I think it's, it can be really hard and it's, it's not something that I, you know, walk up to someone and say, hi, I'm Lisa and I have bipolar. Um, so I think that, you know, the stigmas around that and the Mm -hmm. way that people view that makes it really hard to be open about it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think the more that we can be, people can be like, oh, I know Lisa, like she's whatever, like, Mm -hmm. you know, and she has this thing. It doesn't define her. Yeah. Um, like start associating healthier images with, um, with something that we would deem unhealthy or erratic or, you know, all these other ideas that I feel, like the media has yeah. portrayed or even when you see a celebrity and they're acting erratic and then the media is like, oh, like mental disorder or yes. like the only person I can think of off the top of my head is like Kanye yes. and how there was like, it was all yeah. about like judgment and looking at him, but yes. not about like, hey, let's get him help or right. like how can we incorporate and teach mental health in a healthy way? Absolutely. I mean, that's a great mm-hmm. example of it. Mm-hmm. It's just demonizing the person yes. and not recognizing like, this is a disease like any other disease. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if Kanye had cancer, we wouldn't just be like demonizing him and yeah. making fun of him. Because it's like a physical and- illness that we yes. can like prove or something, right. you know? Right, Yeah. Um, yeah. And I can't even like, I, this is not at all in the same range, mm-hmm. but I remember like after giving birth, I had the baby blues because baby blues is within two weeks. And then after two weeks, it's postpartum depression Mm -hmm. and feeling and having the baby blues. Like I spent like maybe a day or two just crying uncontrollably. Like I could not, my hormones, like my, everything was just like readjusting. So I imagine people living with something very similar where they feel like they cannot, um, you know, like their, their mood is just dysregulated or yeah. all of these other things. And there is, there is a normalization behind baby blues. Like everyone knows mom's experience, right? Where it's something else and you're in a context and then you add like your cultural values or maybe your right. family, the way that your family looks at it, it just might like exasperate things. 100%. And the fact that a lot of people like don't believe it, mm-hmm. there's a lot of like, yeah, uh, nah, yeah, you're yeah. just blaming what you're doing on this. Yes. Or like, that's an excuse it's or an excuse. like, or it doesn't uh, really exist. Yeah. Or, yeah. Which could also create this like shame yes. with the person who has it. it yeah. It's like, is this even real? Like, am I, is this an excuse? Like doubting yourself? Yeah. 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 There's just, there's so much that plays into it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's true for so many people, you know, so many people who deal with these issues. And then if you have, um, not to like take it off of me, but Mm -hmm. like a lot of my clients have are on the schizophrenia spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if you have something like that, that's even more stigmatized and even more, you know, demonized than Mm -hmm. really coming out about it and and getting help. It it keeps people from not getting help, Mm -hmm. um, because, or it keeps people from getting help because they, you know, it's, it's just, I don't know. It just becomes this huge thing that feels like it's unconquerable. Yeah. Because of all those issues. Yeah. And those are such good points. Um, And then you add in like going back to um, where you're working and your client population, you add in like, because when you do have trauma, it's this like feeling of loss of control. Um, 
And so a lot of the ways that people find that control or self-soothe is through substance use. Yes. And so like you combine those two. Yeah. Um, I can even imagine like how more stigmatizing it is. Oh, completely. Yeah. Completely. What are some like common um, themes that you see like with your clients like in terms of where maybe their shame lies or mm-hmm. what – I mean, we talked a little bit about like how stigma plays into it, but are there any other factors that play into like not wanting to get help or? Yeah, I think um, a big one is cultural aspects. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of our clients come from cultures where it's not accepted to ask for help or to get, I mean, therapy especially, Mm -hmm. but even asking for help. Like you got to pick yourself up from the yep. bootstraps and just get it done. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And where, or, or cultures where therapy is not even a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's a big part of it. Um, also, I've lost my train of thought. It's okay. <laughs> um, also, yeah, just the um, wanting to be like this, this persona of wanting to be really, you know, mm-hmm. tough and really strong. Yes. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. Um, also, there's so much sexual trauma in this population. Yes, yes, yes. And so you've got these, again, mostly I'm working with men. We have like Mm -hmm. housed like 70 to 75 men. It's an inpatient facility. Um, Mm -hmm. So you've got these like tough guys who are trying to, who've been in prison and are putting on this, this persona. um, And they've got all this sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, it's a huge percentage of our population that does. And that's really hard for not only this population, but I mean, men growing up in our society in general Mm -hmm. in the U S like how, how there's like this, like, you know, you have to be tough and machismo and like whatever Mm -hmm. it is behind all that. Um, dealing with that kind of trauma, they just push it down and Mm -hmm. they don't want to talk about it and they don't admit it. And a lot of times bringing that into the therapy room, it'll be the first time they've talked about it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's something that really can hold them back. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine that with that added layer of like being a man and from what I've heard, there's a lot of like, well, because you are, you're a man, like you enjoy it or you should have enjoyed it. Because right. mm-hmm. when you were talking about um, sometimes feeling like I was a man, if this happened to me, like if I, mm-hmm. you know, if I ejaculated, that means that I enjoyed it or whatever. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I think that's especially hard when the perpetrator is a woman. Now, a lot of the times mm-hmm. it's not, a lot of the times it's a man. Um, but I have had clients where it was like, oh, when I was seven, my, you know, 14 year old female cousin molested me. Mm-hmm. And those are even harder because it, the, the confusion that comes with that as a kid, it's like, well, physically I enjoyed it. Like physically my body mm-hmm. reacted to that. Mm-hmm. I was so young that I didn't understand it and it was still traumatizing. Um, but that's, what's supposed to happen with a girl and, you know, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff in this very straight, you know, cis het population, mm-hmm. um, makes it even more confusing and yeah. harder to overcome. Yeah. Cause essentially like, it's probably praise like, Oh, like yeah. you were young and it was with a 14 year old girl, like good yes. job for you. And it's like pat on the back. Totally. And at the same time, it's like acknowledging that in that moment, it probably didn't feel that way. No. It probably felt confusing yeah. and like weird and yeah. like someone else is touching me without my consent. Yes. Yeah. And like, I know this is quote unquote wrong. I mean, not mm-hmm. even quote unquote. I know this is wrong. I know this isn't how this is supposed to be. And then all that gets, you know, caught up in like, okay, maybe this is what love is. And it just mm-hmm. causes so much damage. Yeah. And also 
I imagine too, like with the closeness and age, like mm-hmm. if you do have, I think a lot of uh, young people or like people when they grow up and they're yeah. like, my first experience was with someone around my same age right. and mm-hmm. thinking like, well, that's not trauma or that wasn't any type of like sexual molestation. Right. Cause it's like, it was someone who was also a kid, yes. but older. Yeah. Um, so even that added layer of like, I don't think it was trauma, you know, even though we felt like it was. Yes. Oh, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Even if it's someone the exact same age, if Mm -hmm. if you're a child and someone is doing that to you without your consent Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's just so much, yeah, there's so much built into that, that it's just, it's confusing and our little kid brains Mm -hmm. can't understand that. Yeah. Like developmentally, we are not there. Developmentally, we're not thinking like it's not a reproductive stage for for kids. Yeah. There's a lot that that goes into that. Yeah. So then, so then a big thing is, so what I'm hearing is like when, with a lot of these like comorbidities, there's that history of trauma. There's like culture that plays into it, possible like sexual trauma. And so what would you like, at what point do you see your clients like where they have got into this like um like to their lowest of lows like what is like the most common um like I guess occurrence of that like Mm. what gets into that point where it's like this is not and I mean you kind of have your own like personal experience with it so I don't know if it feels like it ties in like at what point should people be seeking help that's really hard. I know. I right? um, so like it. Yeah, because in addiction, they talk about it as hitting your bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there, there's kind of a quote, It can like, look different for everyone, It too. can look different for everyone. Mm-hmm. And there's always a lower bottom. Mm-hmm. So, like, people get to a point um, – I mean, we've had a lot of people who come in who've, who've OD'd multiple times. Mm-hmm. And, like, the next bottom for them is death, you know, mm-hmm. um, because addiction is a life or death disease. Yeah. And so – I think it looks different for so many people. A lot of our clientele is previously incarcerated, so they might be coming to us directly from jail or prison. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it might be like, this is a condition of their probation or parole. Mm -hmm. Um, So for them, I mean, it is a choice still. They're not Mm -hmm. in lockdown, but it's, um, they're kind of like forced into it in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, Other people that, that we are, other clients that we have, they maybe have nowhere else to go because they've been living on the streets for a long time. Um, so yeah, I think it's very, it just depends. I mean, for me, like my quote unquote bottom was landing in a psych hospital Mm -hmm. and like not being able to function. And that's what got me into a healing pattern and into treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it's different for everyone. And I, I've had a lot, I mean, it's like 8% maybe of people with addiction actually recover Mm -hmm. and stay sober. And so a lot of our clients and a lot of just people that I've known in my own recovery, you know, um, keep relapsing over and over and over. And that bottom keeps getting lower mm-hmm. and you just hope that people can, you know, can stop the cycle before, I mean, death is, you know, I've had a lot of friends die from this disease. Mm-hmm. So you just hope that there's a place where that cycle can stop. Yeah. It, it seems like a, like a lifelong, um, yeah. like every day you wake up, you make that choice. Yeah. Um, with however you're going to like you you're going to use the tools that are healthier for you or you're going to use the tools that have always brought this like sense of comfort. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, the and the word choice is a really difficult mm-hmm. one. Yeah, in this, in this yes, yeah, cuz there's also that stigma of like 
well, they're addicted or they're using these drugs. Like, why don't you just It's stop? their choice to stop. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. And I'm not saying like no, that's no, a yeah, bad word. But, but it's good to also bring that up. Yeah, it is such a, a weighted word mm-hmm. with this population yes, because, yes. you know, I go back and forth on what I, what I think about it. But at some point, like for me now, being sober for as long as I have been, like I can make a choice not to pick up that drink. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I pick it up, that choice is gone. My addiction... Mm-hmm is again, it's like, it's a disease and that Mm -hmm. addiction takes over and I no longer have a choice. Um, so, you know, there's some people think, oh, it's always a choice. And some Mm -hmm. people, you know, are like, there's never a choice. So it's a hard one. Yeah. And it's, it's always easier someone on the outside to be like, well, you can just stop at any time. Right. Cause that's not the battle that they're fighting. It's a battle that someone else is fighting. Totally. Um, I just, we just, I would just watched a movie the other day. It's called hustle on Netflix Oh yeah. with Adam Sandler. Have you seen it? Yeah. It's so good. And I love that, that one of the things that he was saying is like, it's you against you. And it really like I to me, it translates in so many aspects of our life, like whether we're um, thinking of going for an opportunity that or putting ourselves out there or whatever it is, or just having this battle of mental health. It's like at the end of the day, it's like you against you. Yeah. And um, letting go. I know I, I feel like I'm simplifying it for something that is so there's so many layers, like it's an iceberg. It's not that like right. just what we see. on. But top. I think there's simplifying it helps because it helps yeah. people to understand. Mm-hmm. And I think like what you said about people saying, well, why don't you just stop? Like, mm-hmm. why don't you just put down that drink or that drug or whatever it is, or with your mental health, like just go out and exercise, like stop being depressed. Mm-hmm. If it were that simple, people would, you know, yeah. if it, if, if people could just stop doing the drugs or, or drinking or whatever it is, mm-hmm. they wouldn't lose their children. They wouldn't become homeless. They wouldn't all these things like people don't, that's not what people aspire to. Mm-hmm. You're not a little kid saying like, I want to live on the streets and go to prison. Um, if you could yeah. just stop, you would. Mm-hmm. And, but again, it's a disease. It's like having, you know, cancer, having diabetes, whatever it is. It's not that simple. Yeah. There are so many layers to it. But I think simplifying it, like you said, helps. It yeah, helps people yeah. to understand and relate to it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, and then another thing that, like, I remember the first time you shared um, your story, like your mm-hmm. history and your story and how, like, the whole thing when we were in our addiction yeah. class, yeah. Um, there was this aspect of, like, and I think it was you who acknowledged it or, or, and several other people who were sharing that day mm-hmm. is like that addiction or like substance use and mental uh, disorders also affect everyone around you. Absolutely. Um, and so like me, I'm coming from a space of like I grew up being the person on the outside watching a loved one struggle with addiction and thinking like, I was also young. Like I was not like I had like a teenager brain. And so I was like, I don't get it. Like you're like, there's all these people that are being harmed by it. Like, shouldn't it be easy? Um, So it's also, I think, and what was very healing for me was that person took accountability of that and apologized for that. So there is that layer too of like, I'm sure having to go back and to face the people that you hurt and oh, like yeah. owning up to like, yes, these were my, yeah. these were my mistakes. And it wasn't like, I acknowledge that it also affected other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause it's not a disease mm-hmm. in isolation. Mm-hmm. It's a disease. Like yeah. you said, it hurts family. It hurts friends. Mm-hmm. It, it hurts so many. It, it's so widespread. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when I work with my clients on that, I try to, you know, help them to get past the guilt and the shame. Mm-hmm. Um, and also to recognize these are the things that you did that are, you know, that I did, 
um, mm -hmm. in my disease. And part of that for, for me and working with clients is to help them separate themselves from the disease as well. Mm, like yeah. you are not your disease. Yes. Um, and I think that's with any kind of mental health disorder. Mm -hmm. You are not, you know, I'm not bipolar. I have bipolar. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, yes. and so separating that to help get rid of the lessen at least the guilt and the shame of mm -hmm. what you have done in your disease yeah. so that you can make those amends and you can, you know, mend those relationships with people that you've hurt. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's such a great point is like this, uh, tendency to like over identify mm -hmm. with, um, with whatever mental issues we're struggling with. Like I know, um, with some of my clients, like it would be like, well, my anxiety, my anxiety, and it was like a yeah. part of them, yeah. but like, how does your life look apart from that? So can you elaborate a little bit more on the addiction aspect mm -hmm. and how it might look like in people's like everyday life? I know it's probably going to look different for everybody, but yeah. like maybe some ways that it comes out and people can be like, start acknowledging it. Like this right. is how it looks. Yeah. It's again, yeah, I think it is very individualized. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be different for everyone, but, um, you know, there have been a lot of studies that show that people with addiction issues are actually born with fewer dopamine receptors. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so a lot of what's happening in those cases, at least is people are seeking to feel better because they don't have enough dopamine. So they're seeking to mm -hmm. like put something in their bodies to help replace that or replenish that. Mm -hmm. Um, it's the same with people. A lot of people who turn to meth or to like speed mm -hmm. type drugs, um, are people who struggle with ADHD. And so a lot of it is people trying to self-soothe mm -hmm. to really overcome the, the mental health stuff that they're dealing with. Um, and so I think, you know, I can only talk about my own experience, I guess, and mm -hmm. how it progresses and how, what it looks like. Um, because for me, a lot of people around me didn't know, um, actually, including my husband at the time who I lived with, mm -hmm. did not really think I had wow. alcoholism. Yeah. It was just kind of like, this is Lisa. She's a party girl. She, mm -hmm. you know, but as it started to get worse and worse, um, I, first of all, I started to be able to drink a ton more, um, mm -hmm. you know, which was abnormal, but all those kind of abnormal things become normal because you just keep hitting these like lower and lower I don't know, cliffs or shelves or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so like in the sense of like where if you do something, are you, are you speaking more on like actions? Like you do something and it's like, kinda. oh, like I got through this. And so like yeah. maybe like, uh, I don't know. Like a way to just like for me, my mm -hmm. own experience mm -hmm. was um, at a certain point in my drinking, I started blacking out every time I drank. Mm -hmm. And at first it was kind of like, whoa, what's happening? And I mm -hmm. remember like my now ex-husband pointing it out and it was like oh well it's because i switched from you know whatever beer to wine it's the mm -hmm. wine mm -hmm. but then that just became the new normal and so then like that that thing that you thought i could that would never be yeah. me it just keeps going down so mm -hmm. a lot of people when they get into their addiction it's like now i'm no longer hanging out with my friends i'm hanging out with a group of people that i never thought i would hang out with mm -hmm. and then that becomes normal now i've become homeless oh my gosh i never thought i'd be homeless but then that becomes normal. Mm. Now I've gone to jail. So it's all these like steps down yeah. where that then becomes normal for you and acceptable things that you would never accept before. Mm -hmm. So when you see people kind of on that trajectory, um, I think that can be kind of a warning sign. Like yeah. all of a sudden you need to drink, you know, like every, every time day. you go out 
or every time you do drink, it's yeah. this like, oh, I need to black out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, once you have a drink, you can't stop. Um, you know, my experience is, is with alcohol. So like if you have one, then you cannot stop. And I, and I remember my ex being like, well, just don't drink tonight. Like, mm-hmm. you know, let's just smoke pot or whatever. Yeah. Don't drink. And I'm like, oh no, I'll just have one or two. But the reality was that could never happen. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just this progression. Um, another thing would be maybe seeing people withdraw because they don't want to be, they don't want you to know what's happening. They don't want to be, they need to do this thing, but they don't want people to see them doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would like be partying with my friends and they wouldn't know it, but I'd be sneaking up to the bar and doing extra shots mm-hmm. or I would drink before we went somewhere. Yeah. Um, so there's these little things that you're hiding. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, you know, throw away the wine bottles so that my husband wouldn't see them. Even though I wasn't trying to hide my drinking necessarily, it was like, these behaviors that it's like, I know I'm doing something that's not quote unquote normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want other people to judge me or to know that's happening. Yeah, Cause essentially it's like you're drinking a bigger amount than yeah. like people would probably, cause Absolutely. if someone saw you drinking that they'd yeah. be like, Oh, like yeah. they would probably say something about yes. it. Yes. If someone knew that I had gotten to a point where I was actually drinking like three to four bottles of wine mm-hmm. in a three hour period, mm-hmm. it would be like, Whoa, what's happening. Mm-hmm. But if you're just drinking with everyone and they don't see that because you're sneaking it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, and I think it's, there's similar things with drugs. You know, you start to pull away from your, the friend group that you were a part of because they're not doing that. Um, and also maybe you're, you're wanting to be a part of this kind of, I don't know. I, I feel like the drama of drinking and drug mm-hmm. use also becomes an addiction in, in and of itself. Yeah. Like the, the chaos of the it. Chaos. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you. That's a good word. The chaos, mm-hmm. that lifestyle, the whatever. And so you want to hang out with people who are doing those things. And I've seen it in other people. Like I'm bored with my with my, what you call, uh, in the addiction world, we call them normies, people mm-hmm. who don't have addiction. Mm-hmm. I'm bored with my normie friends because they're not doing the things I want to do. You know, I want to be doing these drugs. I want to be doing these, these behaviors or whatever. That's what's filling me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, otherwise I think it's so, it's so individualized. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think those are some telltale signs mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah. Um, people are doing we, things that they wouldn't normally do. Yeah. And then there was a point that you brought up about how like you say like, or someone would say like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to drink like one or two drinks mm-hmm. and that's never it. Can you yeah. like talk a little bit more about how it felt at that time when it, mm-hmm. like maybe your, your intention was to drink one or two right. drinks, but you knew like, I'm not going to just drink that. Yeah. that's a hard one. Um, I think it took me a long time to admit that part because Mm -hmm. I didn't, even when I went into treatment for addiction, I really didn't quite believe I had an addiction. Mm -hmm. I thought it was more the mental health stuff and that the alcohol was just trying to, you know, compensate for that. Um, but I think part of it is like, I don't know. Um, you're kind of lying to yourself. Cause I think I did mm. sort of believe it maybe mm-hmm. like, oh, I could just have one or two. Yeah. But as soon as I had that first drink, it was just on. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like this, this obsessive feeling, um, you know, people, if you have um, an eating disorder or people who have other disorders where it's this, you almost get this like hyperventilating type feel mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, I need this. I have to, I have mm-hmm. to have this. And mm-hmm. it's like, even for me, once I decided I was going to have a drink, you know, there were days where I would be driving home from work and calling my my best friend in Florida 
and we would be like, okay, we would have what we called BBP beverage by phone. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, once I knew that was going to happen, I would start to get this like almost anxiety feeling. Like, um, would you say like craving it? Like almost like definitely craving it, mm -hmm. definitely craving. It's so hard to explain because yeah. it's like, like, again, for me, it was almost mm -hmm. in my chest and like a okay. breathing, like a, this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Like if you're super excited about something, maybe yeah. that anticipatory feeling, mm -hmm. um, and then as soon as you have it, it's like now game on. Mm -hmm. This is not going to stop until I black out and pass out. Yeah. Um, and it's like, yeah, even if I would think I could have one. At some point I knew I couldn't though because mm -hmm. I would go out for dinner with people and they would have a drink and I would choose not to mm -hmm. because I knew that I couldn't stop. If I did have a drink, then I would keep drinking while I was with them. I would go home and keep drinking. Mm -hmm. um, and the same with, you know, when I was around my family who did not live in the same state, so I didn't see them often. Um, they might have, everybody would have a glass of wine in the evening mm -hmm. and I wouldn't have one because I knew as soon as I did, I couldn't stop. Yeah. Like almost like as soon as it was in your hands, it was like automatic, like Absolutely. that it was going to be either a blackout or yeah. like, as soon as no I have stopping. one drink, I have to keep going. There's yeah. just no stopping it. And I also like, I imagine this, the, the sneakiness creates also the shame or like, yeah. um, how different, like noticing, like how different you are, where it's like these people, my family, my loved ones can just have yeah. one drink and they're fine. And yeah. I'm struggling with this whole other dimension of this. Right. Again, for me, it, I didn't get there until mm -hmm. the very end because I didn't necessarily think it was a problem. Mm -hmm. I almost think it was the opposite. I would, I didn't understand how they could have just one drink. Mm, like interesting. That doesn't sound fun to me. Yeah. One drink would make me sleepy. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't understand how that's what you want because for me, my body processes alcohol differently. Mm -hmm. And so once it's in my body again, there's like no stopping it. Mm -hmm. So I would, it just didn't make sense. Or how could you have a glass of wine and leave some in the, in the glass? Mm -hmm. How could you drink half a beer? Like that doesn't, it still doesn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. It yeah. doesn't sound fun. Like I want the full fun. I want the full party. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that we also learned in our addictions class is that there's like predispositions to addiction too. Absolutely. So there's like, it's not just like, not everyone, um, well, what we, what, and I think this is also still maybe like a controversial topic, but how like one person could, um, maybe, um, like do drugs that are addicting, like yeah. the main one, like, I don't know, meth or, um, heroin. Oh. And with that one, they probably won't get addicted right. if they don't have these predispositions to yeah. it. Whereas like Absolutely. other people who, and I think one of that is like past trauma history. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you remember what it was. Like it was like past trauma history and like, Genetics. Um, yeah. And like susceptibility to change yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. So there's also those factors oh, absolutely. that I think are so important to yeah. take into consideration and like, when yeah. we are approaching or if we have a loved one in our lives right now that is struggling with addiction to also consider that. Absolutely. I mean, so it has been proven that there's a genetic predisposition mm -hmm. for addiction. Yeah. Um, and like in my own family, I had a um, great uncle and then an uncle who mm -hmm. both um, had addiction issues. They were both sober, like either before I was born or when I was really young. So I never saw it. Mm -hmm. And all I saw was these people that then became super successful, like president mm -hmm. of a bank or whatever. Um, but I knew it was there. And mm -hmm. I have another cousin who has, um, who's in recovery like I am. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a genetic component. My thought behind it is that there's a combination of genetics, um, trauma, like you said, mm -hmm. and um, just temperament. 
Mm-hmm. Everyone has a different temperament. So, you know, I have a sister who does not have an addiction issue. Mm-hmm. Um, our temperaments are very different. Our trauma histories are very different. And so I think there's just such a combination of things that, again, like I said earlier, it's just like mm-hmm. the spark that ignites it. Yeah. Um, maybe I said that earlier. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think there's there's not we don't have the answer to like what causes one person to have it, one person Mm -hmm. to not. Um, But it definitely, you know, I mean, that's happened with twins. One of the twins becomes addicted and the other one doesn't, you know, the other one never touches a drop of alcohol or whatever. Mm -hmm. So there's, yeah, it's. Yeah. And I think also like having that knowledge is um, well, for me being like, in a sense, like on the outside, not really understanding what it is to live day to day um, in recovery or with an addiction. um, It helps me understand and view someone from that lens rather than this like othered, right? Like they're like, they're the other type of person or they're like, they have this choice or all of this other stuff. And it destigmatizes the fact that it's like, it's not like, that addiction and substance use disorders and mental health disorders are like at the end of the day, like looking at that person as a person, as a person who has a background. I don't know. I just feel like understanding it from that lens and looking at it from like the person. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Humanizing it. Yes. And I think it helps when people, if they can find some way to relate even a tiny bit, like mm-hmm. if your coping mechanism is food and you overeat, if mm-hmm. your coping mechanism is working out yeah. and you're suddenly working out three hours a day, yes. it doesn't have to become an addiction, but looking at some, how someone could have a coping mechanism, because yeah. that's usually what it is mm-hmm. that just becomes like it, it worked until it didn't, mm-hmm. you know, it becomes something that then yes. is just a snowball and out of control. Yes. And I love that you bring that up because things like, eating food or like not eating food that's essentially normalized in our culture and working out because it's a healthy behavior um and i'm using quotation marks (laughs) um that it's also like glorified like oh you're working out like what a great way to release like tension but there are people who become addicted to working out and then it becomes an unhealthy behavior um and so yes like finding a way to relate to it Mm -hmm. um and because as someone who like when I was working out and I was counting my calories, it became a little like addictive and I felt almost like out of the norm or weird when I wasn't like yeah. when I would eat something that was unhealthy and I felt like, oh my gosh, am I going to gain all of this weight back? Yeah. And that's like thinking about it in that way where it's like our minds can um, get to that point. Absolutely. If we, you know, if we get to that point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I have an eating disorder when Mm -hmm. I was younger, I had um, what someone described once as um, exercise bulimia, Mm -hmm. where there was a point where I was working out three hours a day and I would go to work. Often I would go to the bar Mm -hmm. and I would come home and I would go run and and do all this stuff at like three in the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, any of that can become unhealthy, even if it's a healthy Mm -hmm. behavior. Mm -hmm. So being able to maybe relate in that way, it's hard. It's hard for if you haven't gone through something, it's really hard to completely understand mm-hmm. and and sympathize with the person. Yes. And that's the I think that's also the beauty of like therapy and mm-hmm. um also just trying to understand mental health more yeah. is like seeing that person for everything like the seeing them like it's not just the person that you see in that behavior, but there's so much more behind it. Right. Um 
Yeah. And just trying to get to that place. So honestly, if there is anyone who does have a loved one who is struggling with some sort of addiction, or if that is you, like, mm-hmm. I think having that compassion and yeah. self-compassion yeah. Um, is so important. And it's like, I'm just trying to survive this world right. Right. and it's all its hecticness and like everything that has even happened within these past two years, three yeah. years, like that's just like, I don't know. It's a collective trauma in its own. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I guess the last thing that I'm wondering if you could share is, um, can you talk a little bit more about your, like how recovery is in your day to day? Like, how is that now? Like coming out of it, but you're still like, you're still in recovery because it's an everyday process. Can you elaborate more? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that's how I, I always say I'm in recovery mm-hmm. because, and not recovered mm-hmm. because like any kind of disorder or disease, it doesn't just go away. It's mm-hmm. always there. Um, again, sometimes I'll compare it to like cancer. Like you'll be in remission, mm-hmm. but you have to do all these things to make sure it doesn't come back. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So for me, again, it's been um, like almost eight and a half years that I've been mm-hmm. sober, but it's still a daily battle mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. I'm not always thinking about it and I'm not always like, oh my gosh, I want to drink. But there are times when that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for me, like community is a big part of my recovery. And so being around friends, um, having, I've got a really tight knit, multiple tight knit friend groups that are in recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, being around people who understand when I say yeah. the things that I did in my recovery, they're like, oh yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, Cause it, it eliminates that shame that maybe does. you feel with people who haven't experienced it completely. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, trying to like self-care is huge and I'm mm-hmm. not great at that. <laughs> um, but just doing things, um, for me, I, I'm involved in AA, um, I'm not an AA pusher. I think everyone's, um, everyone's recovery is different. It's all individualized. And so it's whatever works for you. Um, what works for me in AA again is the community. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just spending time with other sober people, um, there's a lot, you know, meditating, exercise, all that kind of stuff that helps, helps in that recovery process, helps mm-hmm. in the healing. Um, but yeah, it still is, you know, I, there are times where stress comes up and I'm like, I really wish I could get drunk, you know, Mm, Um, or I see it on TV and I'll like, I'll have a visceral reaction. Like I can smell wine was my thing. So like Mm. I can smell it, I can taste it. Yeah. Um, Thinking back and romanticizing my past fun times, you know, Mm. Um, even the past times that were just completely about alcohol, but there was a fun in that too. Mm. Um, You know, missing that, missing that part of me. Mm -hmm. When you get sober, there's like, um, it's like losing a loved one in a way that addiction is, is a loved one. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of recovery programs have you write a goodbye letter. It provided so much comfort for you. Yeah. Yeah, And it's a part of who you are. Like Mm -hmm. I was Lisa, the party girl, Mm -hmm. you know? And so sometimes, especially when you first lose that, it's like, well, who am I now? Mm -hmm. Like you had mentioned that with, with mental health stuff, who am I without this? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's really hard to, how could I ever have fun again? You know, mm-hmm. when alcohol or whatever your drug is, is associated with fun. How can I be fun? Not wanting to be like the straight edge person who maybe I used to think, oh my gosh, that person's so like, whatever, like a negative mm-hmm. connotation with someone who didn't drink and party and whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, um, there's just a lot that's wrapped up to it in, in it. And you have to, you have to be vigilant. Everyone, yeah. you know, a lot of, in AA, at least we say like, 
um, I haven't done that yet. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't been in jail yet. I haven't, you know, yeah. I haven't, I actually haven't gotten a DUI. I don't know how, but it's all these yets mm-hmm. because if I start drinking again, all those things can happen and likely will. Mm-hmm. Anyone that I've seen in recovery who is sober for a while and relapses, they just keep going down and down. Like you start where you stopped and it just keeps getting worse. Yeah. And I love that change of that. I love that, um, that small word yet. Yeah. Like I haven't done this yet because yeah. it reminds you of like, I'm cap. I could get yeah. to that point oh, yeah. if I go back to this. Like yeah. it's not, it's like almost like being real with yourself yeah. rather than lying. Like, oh no, if I do this, like I'll right. be fine. Right. But it's like, no, like if I do this, like I haven't gotten to that point yet, Yeah. but I, I can't discount it from like happening. Yeah. Cause addiction, it's non-discriminatory. You know, mm. there are, it doesn't matter who you are. You can yeah. be this you know, high profile doctor or lawyer, mm-hmm. you can get in a drunk driving, driving accident and kill someone. Yeah, You can end up losing everything and become homeless. You can go to prison. Like all these things people think about like, oh, addiction is like skid row mm-hmm. or it's yeah. like this like really negative grimy kind of thought about it. And mm-hmm. it's anybody, it mm-hmm. could be anybody. And so, yeah, I mean, I've known people who, if you met them, they seem just like, I don't know, like you would never know Mm -hmm. that their past had been what it was because of addiction. Yeah. Yeah. And it also, you mentioned something about how like when you do get those like urges or like you, you want to like how it's still that ongoing battle and how you'll like, you can smell it. And so it it just reminds me of like when we are trying to change or where we're um, changing or whatever, whatever, stage we're in, in that process, like our body will be the first thing to kind of deceive us. Yeah. Um, because our body remembers, like our body, like remembers how that felt and how it smelled and like, you know, where, what we were doing and the fun that we were having. And so like self-care and grounding yourself and finding ways to like meditation or whatever works for that person or finding other ways to like raise your dopamine levels. Like absolutely. Yeah. For me, it's being around friends. A mm-hmm. lot of that, like coming like here, your and, community, yeah. and yeah, and and seeing you, and mm-hmm. all the things that I do to, because I'm an extrovert. So all the mm-hmm. things that I do to feed that and to raise my dopamine, and to you know, again, like every single day, recommit to this. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to drink today, just yeah. for today. This is what I'm going to do. Um, yeah. yeah. It's you against you. It is. It's here. you against I mean, you. I mean, if you're trying to be a basketball coach, it's you yeah. against you. <laughs> it is though. It mm-hmm. really is. And I think that's true with any kind of mental disorder. It's mm-hmm. you against you, like you said earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a daily battle for people. Um, but it can happen. People can recover mm-hmm. or be in recovery. Sorry. Yeah. 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 It's like, it's possible even yes. if it doesn't feel like it. Yes. In the moment. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you yeah. for talking more about your experience and everything. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I love this. Thank, thank you. I do too. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. That concludes this episode of Please Expand, where we expanded on topics pertaining to mental health, lifestyle, and friendships. If you are enjoying this content and if you would like to hear more, please subscribe and follow to get notified when the newest episode is out. Thank you for listening in and joining me on the healing journey. Bye friends.